Well, good morning. I want to thank you for letting my family and I get away. Uh, we went to the beach last week with Brooke's side of the family, and that's why Alex Hairgrove was here in the pulpit, and we've managed to return without sunburns and uh, are happy to be back with you to fellowship today. And uh, we're going to take a little detour just this week from Isaiah to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And I want to introduce this paragraph by confessing to you that it can be a difficult thing to live the Christian life well. If you've been a Christian for any time, you know this. Even though you have God's Word in your hands and the Holy Spirit in your heart, it can be easy uh, to lose your way. It can be hard to keep your priorities straight. Maybe it's something as small as spending some time in the morning deep cleaning the bathroom, only to find in the afternoon that someone has come in, made a complete mess of it, and to add insult to injury, they forgot to flush. And so, <clears throat> you can feel the anger rising in your heart as you go on a quest to find which child commit this great crime and punish them for it. Or uh, maybe you just crave the affection of a certain person too much. Uh, you know you shouldn't ride the roller coaster of emotions of all their responses to you, but you do. They've become too large and too important in your life. Or maybe it's the desire just to win and be right. It manifests itself in the small way of being so competitive, you're unpleasant to play games with, and in the big way of constantly having to be affirmed as right in every argument. And so, instead of being motivated by a desire for reconciliation and unity and love, you're motivated by being right, and you damage relationships uh, because of it. Uh, I could give more examples. It, the point is, it's easy to lose our way, right? It's easy to lose track of what's important in the Christian life. And today, we're going to examine a paragraph of Scripture that presents a value to us that helps us keep our priorities straight, and that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. Now, before I read the text, it's worth noting what comes before this paragraph. Mark just read to you uh, verses 3 through 9 of 1 Peter 1, and in those you hear about uh, the glorious salvation we've received. We've been chosen by God to be born again to a living hope and to obtain an eternal inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Uh, we've become God's children. He's now our loving Heavenly Father, uh, and that gives us a new identity. And the point I want to make here is that most New Testament letters stress this. Most of the New Testament letters start with statements about who God is, who our new identity in Christ is, and the grace we've received. Then they move on to the commands. And I want to point out that sequence, because we're going to be looking at a command today, but I just want to make you aware, most of the New Testament letters, they start this way. They start with the grace we've received, who God is, our identity, then we move to the commands. And that, import, uh, that sequence is very important to remember, because if you forget your identity and you just skip ahead to the commands, two things will happen. First of all, your devotion to the Lord will become joyless because you've forgotten the privileges and the grace you've received, <clears throat> and, and all you're focusing on are the rules. It'll become burdensome. But second, if you're not motivated by a proper sense of thankfulness and joy at the grace you've received, then you'll start playing mind games with yourself and finding ways to do, ends or in, uh, to do an end around 
with the commands of God. If you remember, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus points this out. The Pharisees, they're a great example of this. At one point, the Pharisees had taught, they had taught the people, and this was like a popular teaching that Jesus had to fight against. They had taught the people that if you swore an oath by the temple of God, it was nothing and you didn't have to keep it. But if you swore by the gold that was in the temple, then you had to keep it. Like, those are the kinds of ridiculous spiritual games, mind games, people play with themselves when all they're focusing in on is the rules and not on the grace we've received. Uh, one of the stories that my parents like to remind me of, uh, when I was a toddler, my parents, my dad was stationed at uh, Rickenbacker Air Force Base in Ohio, and uh, they had told me I couldn't go out in the street, right? Uh, and one day I was playing with my ball in the front yard, and my parents had left me in the yard unattended, and I was unaware of this. They were watching me from the kitchen window, so they saw everything that was going on. My ball went out in the street, and so I went over to the curb, and I carefully kept the toes of both my feet inbounds and crawled out into the street to get the ball, thinking that if I kept my toes inbounds, I was still fulfilling the spirit of the command. And you know this, the spirit of the command was that no part of my body was supposed to go out in the street for the purpose of safety, right? And, and uh, it's a good illustration of if all you do is focus on the commands of God, you'll miss the point. Uh, you'll convince yourself you're living by the rules when in reality you're failing to conduct yourselves according to the rules objectively, and you're missing the whole spirit and intention of them. We're called to live in a unique way because we now have a unique identity as sons and daughters of Christ. And there is a logic to the commands that God gives, but that logic alone won't be enough to motivate you to live by those commands if you forget the grace you've received and the joy of your new identity and the hope of the grace and uh, privileges and rewards that we'll receive in the future. And so, the reason we conduct ourselves as the unique people of God isn't because we have a list of new rules. That's not the point. The point is because we are new people in Christ. So, as we look at the command given in our text today, it's important to come to the command uh, mindful of the grace we've received. Follow along with me then as I read First uh, Peter verses uh, 17 through 21 of chapter 1. <clears throat> Peter says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." Our translators have translated these verses into two sentences, but really in Greek they form one long sentence, one long unit of thought. We're given a command in verse 17, we're given reasons to obey the command in verses 18 through 20, and then in verse 21 we're shown a result of what will happen if by God's grace we can obey this command. Let's look at the command first in verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, 
conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So, the command is to conduct yourselves in the fear of the Lord. Uh, in Greek, the word sojourn is used here to remind us that we are only here temporarily, right? It's a word that's… Uh, we are temporary residents here on earth. Our, uh, our primary citizenship is in heaven. It's as if we're living in exile for a very brief time here on earth, and the brief limited time we have as temporary residents on earth, we need to spend conducting ourselves in the fear of the Lord. Now, when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, His followers to pray, He taught us to address God as our heavenly Father. Now, that God is our heavenly Father is one of the most uh, precious and comforting realities of being redeemed. Uh, we can address God intimately, knowing that He knows and that He cares. But as we appeal to God as Father, we must not forget the fear of the Lord. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is what scales are to learning the piano. It is what knowing your letters uh, uh, are to uh, reading. Uh, it's, it's something that is not just the beginning of wisdom. It's something that continues that we have… We, you, you never graduate from the fear of the Lord. That never happens. If you want to be wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to realize that, yes, God is our heavenly Father, but He does not cease to be the judge of all people. And that leads us to the first reason we should conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord. We should do so because our Father is also our judge, and He will judge us impartially. Now, the fact that for the believer, God is both Father and judge, that's led to a lot of confusion and debate uh, amongst people in the church for centuries. Uh, Edmund Clowney, Bishop Edmund Clowney, uh, sums it up this way, the apostolic teaching about God's judgment has been misunderstood. On the one hand, some have considered that God's justifying grace must remove accountability to God in the day of judgment. They've therefore denied that the Christian will stand before God's judgment seat. On the other hand, many have affirmed accountability in the day of judgment, but have interpreted God's verdict as justification by works added to an initial salvation by grace. That latter group that believes in a justification by works that's added to an initial justification by grace, that would be the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, people who deny that uh, Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that would be extreme uh, Protestants who are making the rest of us look bad. And in the middle of this controversy, we need to just go back to Scripture. There's a lot of confusion. We need to just go back to Scripture and let Scripture show us uh, how these two fit together. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, the Apostle Paul says, "'Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad.'" Christians are warned that God will judge us according to our deeds. In 1 Corinthians 3, you can uh, go there afterwards, Paul warns us that there will be a judgment uh, and a, a day of accountability of judgment and reward for believers where our deeds are portrayed as either gold, silver, or precious stones on the one hand, or wood, hay, and straw. Our works will be tried by fire and that which is wood, hay, and straw will be consumed and lost. Now, in light of that judgment, that's the judgment seat of Christ for believers, uh, it is the habit of many evangelical pastors, including myself, 
to portray the day of judgment a Christian faces at the judgment seat of Christ primarily as a day of reward, as a day of vindication for following Christ, a day of vindication for being loyal to Him and being one of His followers, a day where He bestows heavenly treasures on us for our faithfulness in this life. And that's all true. Uh, and, act, and on the day of judgment for believers, I, I believe that each one of us will be surprised by how gracious and how kind God is to us. But it's also worth noting that every single one of us is going to suffer some loss because if we're honest, we all know that every single one of us is going to that judgment with some wood, hay, and straw. There will be accomplishments we were so invested in that turned out to be of no eternal value. Uh, maybe, perhaps, there'll be good works, but good works that we did with really evil motives, and those might go up in flames, right? There will be an accounting. Uh, there, uh, maybe that's a better way to say it, right? We, we don't like the word judgment in our culture, but we like the word accountability, right? We think public officials and leaders should be held accountable. Well, that's what that day is. It's a day of accounting where what we do and what we really lived for it will be made manifest. It'll be made obvious to everybody, and we will receive reward. But I believe each one of us is also going to face some loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this accountability that we face with God as our Father is a future accountability in the day of judgment, but it is also a present reality that we face. In Hebrews 12, we read this, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them, Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. The Scriptures teach us that uh, our accountability with God is both a future event, but it's also a present reality. Uh, yes, there will be a future day of accounting, but it's also in the present that God disciplines His children as necessary so that we learn to share in His holiness. We're told in another portion of the New Testament, uh, in one of the letters Paul writes to the Corinthian church, that in some cases God is willing to bring sickness or even death on His children in order to discipline them. And in that case, Paul was talking about those who partook of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so when you consider these facts, brothers and sisters, we need to confess God can spank really hard, right? There's reason to fear Him in the present because His discipline, He, he, he reserves the right to take away health, to make people sick, and even to bring death. He has authority over death. And our present and future accountability to our Heavenly Father is valuable to us, uh, for us to remember for this reason. One of the lies that Satan and the world and that our own flesh would like to believe is that we uh, live life with no accountability, that we can commit that sin and there won't be any consequences, that we can step over that line again and again and again and there won't be any uh, negative consequences. Now, notice in our outline, 
I know probably a lot of you aren't, don't look at the outline, but if you look at the outline for a moment in the back of your bulletin, the way that I portrayed this command is that the command is to conduct yourself with an informed fear. Uh, by informed, I mean a theologically correct fear of the Lord. Uh, the judgment Peter is talking about here is a judgment, and the judgment of loss that I quoted from the Apostle Paul, Wood, Hay, and Stubble, uh, that has nothing to do with hell. That has nothing to do with being eternally cast out of God's presence. What's going on in this paragraph is family talk. Peter is talking to people who've been forgiven for their rebellion and welcomed into the family of God. But even though you're in the family of God, you must remember that your father is also your judge, and you will give an account for every word, thought, and action. Again, this is important because we would like to believe that there won't be consequences when we do the wrong thing. Uh, we tell ourselves, it's okay if I'm selfish with my spouse. I'm sure deep down they know I love them. Uh, I can live for my possessions, and I'm sure there won't be any consequences. I can gossip about that person. I'm sure it won't get back to them, and uh, there won't be any harm in it. We like to tell ourselves lies like that, but those are all cruel lies, and living with a reverential fear of the reality that our Heavenly Father is also our judge helps us, right? It helps us live in the right way. And so, I would ask you, brothers and sisters, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear Him with an informed fear, not the fear that He's going to cast you into hell, but a fear that knows you're a blood-bought child of God and that He will bring discipline as necessary? You should conduct yourself during your temporary exile here on earth because your Father is also your judge and will judge you impartially. Uh, but you should also fear the Lord because you've been saved from a futile way of living. Look at verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like sil silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. The word redeemed here pictures a, a prisoner of war or a hostage having their freedom purchased by another, that, but more than anything else in the New Testament, it pictures someone's freedom from slavery being purchased. The language of slavery is being used here. You were born into a kind of slavery. You were born into an empty, futile, meaningless, useless, fruitless way of doing life. It was a way of doing life that was passed down to you through your environment. It was taught to you by way of example from uh, your forefathers. It was taught to you by way of coaching from those who've gone before. It taught you to live for money and possessions, and pleasurable experiences, and power, and titles, and achievements, things that won't reconcile you to God and that you can't take with you into eternity future. You were discipled into finding your significance and identity in temporary things that will pass away, but now you've been saved from that futile way of living by Christ. And what, what purchased you from that futile way of living was the valuable sacrifice of Christ. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In the sacrificial system, in the old covenant, uh, sheep were there for sacrificing. That was their function within the old covenant. 
The most important thing in life is our relationship with God, and Christ voluntarily became our sacrificial lamb in order to restore our relationship with God. So, the greatest gift of all is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. He became a sacrificial lamb for you and for me. He was unblemished and spotless because in every situation, He did what His heavenly Father commanded Him to do. He lived under God's rule, and He died as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the demands of God's justice. And in contrast to His precious blood that was shed, there's no amount of money, no amount of silver or gold uh, that could ever purchase our redemption. Jesus Christ is the treasure uh, who has given you the most valuable gift you could ever receive, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of reconciliation with God, so that you can truly call Him your heavenly Father. You've been saved from a futile way of living by the precious blood of Christ. And you've also been given a privileged position in redemptive history. Look at verse 20. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. God the Son existed with God the Father from eternity past. The word foreknown here could legitimately be translated foreordained. In other words, God didn't just look at the world after it fell into sin and say, oh my, I should probably do something to fix that. It was a plan before the world was created that the Son of God would come at the perfect time and become a sacrifice for sin. But the Son's work wasn't fully revealed until He actually took on flesh and came into the world. And when He came into the world, He inaugurated what the Old Testament expected to be the last days. The author of Hebrews says it this way, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through His Son. Christ was foreknown as the one who would come into the world to take away sin, and He's now appeared for our sakes to inaugurate the last days, the fourth quarter, if you will, in God's plan of redemption. Uh, this is the same thing Peter talks about uh, back in verses 10 through 12. Uh, where we learn that we have a privileged re uh, position in redemptive history because we can see specifically how all those prophecies of Messiah come to pass. We can now see in very specific detail how the seed of Eve will crush the head of Satan, right? Uh, we, can, we know by name the seed of Abraham. We know the first name of the son who is the seed of Abraham who will bless all the nations of the earth. We know that the Son of Man, we understand why from Daniel 9, He had to be cut off, but that after being cut off, He would rise again from the grave. The prophets would have given their right arms to read just one of the gospel accounts that we have and see how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It is a glorious thing that we can now see how it all fits and how those prophecies are fulfilled. It's a glorious thing that we've been saved from a futile way of life. These are wonderful things. But the question in the passage becomes, how do they motivate us to fear the Lord, right? That's kind of counterintuitive. I honestly believe that's what Peter is doing. He's giving us reasons to fear the Lord. But how do good things give us reason to fear the Lord? It's a curious thing, right? The fear of the Lord Peter is calling us to 
is preceded and followed by things that you would think of at first glance as taking away fear. For instance, the command to have an informed fear is preceded by the reminder that God is our Father. That should drive out the fear of condemnation from Him, right? Uh, it's followed by the abundant grace we'll receive through Christ. Uh, God hasn't become our Father so that we're uh, left with no assurance of our salvation. That kind of thing should drive out fear, right? We know we've been redeemed. Being redeemed should drive out fear of condemnation and the day of judgment. So, how does fear connect with having a Father who loves us and a Savior who redeemed us? It seems sort of counterintuitive. Well, let me illustrate by borrowing an illustration from Pastor John Piper. Uh, suppose for a moment that a father had a daughter who was kidnapped, and the ransom is a million dollars, and the father doesn't have a million dollars. So, he sells his house, he sells his cars, he sells everything he owns. Uh, I'm going to mix the ancient world with this illustration, even though it's a modern illustration. You can't do this in our world. But imagine that uh, this father also has a son, the daughter has a younger brother, and he sells his son into slavery to get the money to, to get the ransom for his daughter. And he goes to the appointed place at the appointed time. Uh, it's a wide open field, there's no trees so that nobody can hide. And uh, he, uh, he goes and he takes the million dollars and he puts it in the center of the field and walks back to the other side. His daughter comes out uh, to get the money and give it to her captors. That was the arrangement ahead of time. Only when she gives the money to her captors, she turns to her dad and yells, sucker, and then walks away with the million dollars holding the hand of her captor who she's now calling her boyfriend. That's the idea. Fear ever doing that. Don't be that girl, right? Don't don't treat the blood that ransomed you or your heavenly Father in such a shameful way. If cozying up with sin is tempting to you, run the other direction lest you find yourself in bed with the very sin that slaughtered the Son of God. Fear allowing the futile way of living that you were saved from, from ever enslaving you a second time so that you make the blood of Christ that, taught you, that bought you look like a little thing. Fear being the son who acts like silver and gold at the end of the day actually are more precious than the blood of Christ. Don't be that daughter. Don't be that son. When you think about it, even though these are good things, they are actually powerful arguments for conducting our short lives in the fear of the Lord. But what's the result? If, if, if in our heart and souls we could agree with this paragraph and really live it out consistently, is there any reward for us in this life? I mean, we know in the age to come we'll be rewarded for our faithfulness, but even in this life there's a reward, but it's hard to spot. I'm calling it a result. It's in verse 21, and it's the result that our faith and hope are in God. Now, that may not seem like much of a reward, but let me explain. The reason I'm calling it a result is because there is a purpose clause, right? Uh, at the very end of verse 21, he says, so that your faith and hope are in God. And I believe this is the way it connects with actually being a practical reward in this life. When you conduct yourself in the fear of God, the reward is that you don't invest yourself in a false hope that's only going to let you down in the end. You invest in a solid object, a person who won't let you down. Scripture teaches us that if your hope is letting you down, it's because you've placed your hope in the wrong 
place. That's the dynamic in Scripture. Jesus makes God accessible to us through what He does on the cross, uh, through what He did on the cross. Through His precious blood, we can call God Father. Without His precious blood, we would still be estranged from God and without hope in the world. And then, being without God in the world, when eventually some kind of terrible disease overtakes us, we, we get some kind of terrible medical diagnosis, if we were estranged from God, then when that diagnosis comes, what's your hope? Your only hope is that the doctors could heal you, but you have no guarantee that they can, and so your hope in those doctors really is more of a wish. But if you've been reconciled to God and you receive a terrible diagnosis, you have a solid hope. You have a, the hope that when you pray for healing, you know that God hears and has the power to heal. You have the hope that even if He decides not to heal you, even though that would be bad for your body, He's going to use it as good for your soul to refine your faith, and that even if you have to go through the worst, you won't be alone, and death is not the end. He will be with you. He will give you grace, and on the other side, you will go to be with Christ. And not only that, you have the hope that in a future day, you will receive a resurrection body that will never get sick or die again you know that this trial is somehow refining your faith and that God will be with you through it. You have an actual, real hope, uh, not a false hope. We've been saved from meaningless ways of doing life that our forefathers told us uh, would work. We've been saved from way, meaningless ways of doing life that we were told would make our lives matter. Meaningless ways like uh, you know, living for success and achievement that all fall like a house of cards when a terminal diagnosis comes. Meaningless ways of living that won't stand in the day of judgment. The fear of the Lord is what brought you to faith in Christ because it, at some point you realized, oh man, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and the fear of the Lord brought you to Christ. It was a friend and a guide that brought you to salvation. But now that you've come to salvation, let this friend be your guide and counselor towards holy living that enhances your faith and hope in God. Uh, Peter uses these two words, faith and hope, and they're actually related. In his commentary on 1 Peter, John MacArthur describes them this way. In its essence, hope is equivalent to faith. It is trusting God. The major difference between the two attitudes is that faith involves trusting God in the present, whereas hope is future faith, trusting God for what's to come. Faith appropriates what God has already said and done in His revealed wor Word. Hope anticipates what He will yet do as promised in Scripture. When your faith and hope are in God, you're resting on a solid rock. Uh, I know it's hard for you to perceive it, especially if you're younger, but your life is a vapor. And the need of the moment is to conduct yourselves with an informed fear of God because He's not just your Father, He will also be your judge. You've been saved from a futile way of living with the precious blood of Christ. Fear Him who redeemed you by His power, knowing that He will reward your faith and fulfill your hope. Let's pray.